This material contains details of extremely violent crimes that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. It has been my life's mission to study violent offenders and determine the best ways to protect myself and others. Using my proficiency in the martial arts, along with my law enforcement career, I have assembled life-saving tactics and physical techniques proven to defeat violent criminals. Welcome to Serial Defense. I'm Joey Walker, your host and personal safety trainer. During this episode, I'll guide you through the crimes committed by this serial offender and how the victims were selected, and lastly, what you can do to protect yourself during a violent encounter with a serial predator. Over a four-month time span from October 1972 to February 1973, one man in the Santa Cruz, California area was responsible for killing 13 people. His victims were people who crossed his paths as he lived his life dealing with his mental health issues. He operated in the same time period and geographical areas as another serial killer, Edmund Kemper. And because his victims died by a variety of methods, police failed to link him to any of the killings. The person ultimately captured was Herbert William Mullen. During his school age years, Herbert Mullen had numerous friends, and he was voted most likely to succeed by his high school classmates. What many people may not have known was that Herbert was afflicted by paranoid schizophrenic disorder. Shortly after high school, one of Herbert Mullen's friends was killed in a car accident, and his death was devastating to Herbert. As a result, he built shrines to his friend in his room and became obsessed with reincarnation. In 1969, Mullen began his admissions to a total of five various mental health hospitals. His first hospital was the Mendocino State Hospital. He was discharged after being diagnosed, not having to be a danger to himself or others. By the time he was in his mid-20s, Mullins was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, which was only exacerbated by his usage of LSD and marijuana. At the age of 25, Mullins had moved back in with his parents who lived in Felton, California, located in the Santa Cruz Mountains. As a total coincidence, Herbert Mullins' birthday was April 18th, the anniversary of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Mullen lived a life of drug use, coupled with his continuous deterioration of mental health issues. His behavior towards his friends and family members seemed to make sense when he was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. This resulted in Herbert Mullen being frequently institutionalized throughout his life. Mullen believed numbers of American deaths from the war in Vietnam was enough to prevent earthquakes as a blood sacrifice to nature. But because the war in Vietnam was winding down in 1972, he would need to start killing people in order to have enough deaths to prevent a catastrophic earthquake from occurring in California. Mullen later said that his father ordered him telepathically to take some lives. Mullen complained of hearing voices and adopted many different personas. He became a practitioner of yoga, then an amateur boxer. Next, he was a hippie and even a sombrero-wearing Mexican. These personas were never long-lasting to help him achieve peace. However, on October 13, 1972, Mullen seemed to find solace near his hometown of Felton, California. On October 13, 1972, Mullen spotted a homeless man along a quiet stretch of road. He pretended to have car trouble and pulled over, opening the hood of his 1958 Chevy station wagon. The homeless man, later identified as 55-year-old Lawrence White, offered to help Mullen fix his car in exchange for a ride. As Lawrence White looked under the vehicle's hood, Mullen bludgeoned him to death. 
White's body was dragged into the woods, only to be found sometime later. Mullen's next victim was a 24-year-old female hitchhiker by the name of Mary. Near Santa Cruz, California, Mullen picked her up because his father, who communicated to him by telepathy, directed him to kill his second victim. This murder was to be committed as a sacrifice and to test the assumption that the environment was being rapidly polluted and an earthquake was imminent. As Mullen drove, he stabbed her through the chest. He later eviscerated her so he could examine her organs. Her skeletonized remains were found several months later. On November 2, 1972, Mullen went to see a priest at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Los Gatos, California. Herbert Mullen began to have doubts about his father's telepathic instructions. Herbert said the priest, Father Henry Tomey, was a volunteer for his next sacrifice. Herbert opened the door to the confessional booth where he hit, kicked, and stabbed Father Tomey. A parishioner saw Mullen and ran to get help. The physical description of the attacker did not help the police to locate the suspect. In January of 1973 was a very eventful month in the life of Herbert Mullen. Mullen attempted to join the United States Marine Corps, perhaps to justify his campaign of murders. Mullen refused to sign a copy of his criminal record, and the Marines refused to allow him to enlist. It was during that same month that Mullen stopped using drugs and blamed drugs for his problems. It was also in January that Mullen drove to a remote area of cabins where a former teammate who had first given him marijuana lived. Kathy Francis answered the door and told Herbert the man he wanted to see lived down the road. In Herbert Mullen's mind, Kathy insisted that she and her kids, James, age 9, and Robert, age 4, volunteer to be blood sacrifices. He used a firearm to kill Kathy, James, and Robert. Mullen ultimately located his teammate's cabin. He asked his teammate why he had ruined his life by introducing him to marijuana. When his teammate was unable to answer, Mullen shot him. As the man was dying, he crawled to his bathroom to tell his wife to lock the bathroom door. Herbert Mullen broke down the door and fatally shot her as well. On February 10, 1973, Herbert Mullen was hiking in the state park in Santa Cruz. He crossed paths with four teenage boys, Robert Spector, age 18, Brian Scott Card, 19, David Oliker, 18, and Michael Smith, 15, who were camping illegally. Mullen claimed to be a park ranger and told them to leave because they were polluting the forest. The teenagers dismissed the park ranger assertion and Mullen left the area. The next day, Mullen returned and shot all four of them to death. Their bodies were discovered inside their tent. He took their 22 caliber rifle and $20. As Mullen was driving his station wagon, he noticed his next victim, a 72-year-old retired prize fighter named Freddy Abby Perez, working inside his garden in Santa Cruz. Mullen stopped his vehicle and placed a rifle across the hood of his car. Mullen shot Freddy Perez in the heart. This killing was in plain sight of Perez's neighbor, who recorded the suspect's license plate. A few minutes later, police locate and stop the suspect vehicle. Herbert Mullen was arrested as the sole occupant inside their vehicle and promptly taken into custody. In his vehicle was the 22 caliber pistol used in the homicides at the cabins. He did not attempt to use the recently fired 22 caliber rifle on the seat next to him. The trial began on July 30, 1973. Herbert Mullen was charged with 10 murders. Although Mullen had admitted to all the crimes, a main focus was whether or not he was psychotic at the time he committed the crimes. 
And from a legal perspective, they needed to know whether Mullen understood the nature of his actions and understood the difference between right and wrong at the time the crimes were committed. One piece of evidence against Herbert Mullen was the fact that he covered his tracks after some of his crimes, which demonstrated premeditation. After 14 hours of deliberation, on August 19, 1973, Herbert Mullen was found guilty of first-degree murder in the killings of Jim and Kathy Francis because they were deemed premeditated, and eight counts of second-degree murder in the other homicides because the jury considered them as impulse killings. Mullen was charged for the murder of Henry Tomei, the priest. On the day his trial was to begin, December 11, 1973, Mullen pleaded guilty to second-degree murders after changing his original plea of not guilty to first-degree murder by reason of insanity. Herbert William Mullen was sentenced to life imprisonment and was denied parole eight different times. While in custody, Mullen said he committed the homicides only in an attempt to save the environment. He had interactions with convicted serial killer Edmund Kemper. Kemper was active in the same area and at the same time as Mullen. At one point, the two shared adjoining cells. Kemper disliked Mullen for at least two reasons. First, because he said that Mullen killed for no good reasons. He also disliked Mullen because he would bother people by singing when somebody was trying to watch TV. Kemper would throw water on Mullen just to shut him up. But when Mullen began to behave better, Kemper gave Mullen something he liked, peanuts. Kemper, who was a very intelligent and articulate serial killer, said that he used behavior modification treatments on Mullen, causing Mullen to ask for permission to sing. Mullen was incarcerated at the Mule Creek State Prison in Lone, California. Ultimately, Herbert William Mullen was transferred to the California Healthcare Facility in Stockton, California. This facility is a California state prison for patients with long-term medical needs or serious mental health issues. On August 18, 2022, Herbert William Mullen died at the age of 75 from natural causes. Herbert Mullen was in that middle category between an organized and a disorganized offender. For some of his murders, Mullen used a confidence approach, engaging them in conversation. And then once the victim let his guard down, Mullen had them within his comfort zone and attacked. And in other cases, he used a blitz attack and simply attacked his victims without warning. Some of Mullen's victims were alone at the time and some were with others. Near the end of his killing spree, it didn't seem to matter if Mullen committed his homicides with witnesses present or in broad daylight. All Mullen wanted to do was kill. Perhaps he obtained some release of tension after he killed. And if so, it was short-lived. That was until he encountered his next victim. As adults who have seen them, we know that monsters do exist. And people who attack and kill innocent human beings in the way that Mullen killed them are in fact monsters. They can be charming when they need to be. Although Mullen claimed mental illness was the reason he killed his victims, there was some premeditation but lacked significant planning to commit the murders, conceal his crimes, and avoid being identified for his last murder scene. Prior to my career in law enforcement, I worked in a maximum security mental health facility where violent offenders were detained, some of which had committed murders. I gained significant experience as I observed and encountered altercations directed at me as well as others. When people display bizarre behavior and utter psychotic ramblings, they provide warning signs of things to come that could be extremely dangerous to the health and safety of all who are present. When observing the behavior and demeanor of a violent, mentally ill person, it is best to notice things that just don't look right. 
And when things just don't look right, take immediate actions to increase your safety. There may or may not be any verbal warnings prior to the physical attack. Sometimes the attack might be in a quiet moment and that silence may be the only warning sign you get. The attack may be sudden, unprovoked and deadly, whether the recipient of the attack is watching the mentally ill subject or whether the recipient is blindsided. Of the things I've noticed in observing an attack by a mentally ill person was once their attack began, unless the person was physically deterred, they tended not to stop until the subject of their attack was completely incapacitated. I also noted not one iota of emotion on their face, only the focus of what they wanted to do at that moment. I have been forced into situations where I've been violently attacked by patients who are incarcerated for crimes such as homicide, or an individual who was incarcerated there just because he was too violent to be in any less restrictive environment. Each and every time, I implemented the appropriate self-defense technique, which was able to subdue the patient without causing harm to myself or significant injury to them. Over the years, I've heard people talk about violent patients and that they seem to have superhuman strength and don't feel any physical pain. I totally disagree with that observation. I can tell you firsthand, they do not have superhuman strength and do feel physical pain. Whether a person is at the beginning stages of their altercation or in the full throes of a violent attack, when it happens, there will be no time for verbal negotiations. This is only time for action to ensure the offender's actions do not overtake the intended victim. When you look at aggravating and mitigating circumstances, Mary was the only victim with aggravating factors that contributed to her death. Most of the other victims chosen by Mullen were not participating in any type of high-risk activities at the time they crossed paths with Mullen. From the research I've done for serial defense, I've observed many risk factors and behaviors that either the victim or survivors had participated in and the offender exploited those risks. Those aggravated risk factors are listed as the deadly dozen risky behaviors on the serial defense website and participating in any one of those high-risk behaviors can be extremely dangerous and potentially be the cause for a person to lose their life. All the people selected by Mullen were mostly going about their day, doing things that are normal in their everyday lives, when they were selected by Mullen for his killing spree. Because Mullen had numerous victims with each of them, virtually having no common thread between them, I will cover them one by one and provide the individual methodology to their attack and any mitigating efforts they could have employed to survive their attack. Herbert Mullen used a confidence scheme on Lawrence White, pretending to have car trouble to lure him over to his vehicle. And to sweeten the deal, he offered to give Lawrence a ride if he helped fix his vehicle. But while Lawrence was distracted by looking into the engine compartment, Mullen took the opportunity to kill him. Know that any time a stranger asks another person to come within close proximity of them, even under the auspices of helping them, they may or may not really need help. They could be attempting to lure the person into a vulnerable situation. And for that reason, always be a little dubious of a stranger's true intent and keep that person at a safe distance and within your field of vision. Mullen saw the female hitchhiker on the highway. He also used a confidence approach to lure her into his vehicle. Once they were driving, Mullen launched a surprise attack and stabbed Mary as they were driving. When a person is under the deadly attack from a knife, most people may attempt to use their hands to ward off and stop the attack, not launch any type of counterattack. The aggravating factor was that Mary was participating in a high-risk activity, hitchhiking. Hitchhiking is an extremely risky behavior, and any time a person gets into a vehicle with a person they don't know very well, 
They'd literally place their life in another person's hands. Mary trusted Mullen to give her a ride, and when his attack began, she probably never saw it coming until it was too late. I was unable to ascertain any mitigating factors that Mary used or attempted to use that would have prevented her death. Whether Herbert Mullen was actually experiencing a homicidal delusion or had lucid series of remorse feelings about his crimes, even so, when he visited St. Mary's Catholic Church, he ultimately sought out a person who would have no suspicions of his presence and totally defenseless while in a church confessional booth. Mullen opened the door to that confessional booth where he used a blitz attack against Father Tomei. Mullen launched an unprovoked attack on the priest who would never have anticipated an attack. A priest in a confessional booth should only be considered extremely low risk. Perhaps conditioned to never feeling threatened by hearing numerous confessions of his parishioners, as he had probably heard hundreds of times without any incident, especially inside a church confessional booth. When Mullum drove to the cabins where a former teammate once lived in that area, remembering that this was the person who had first given him marijuana, and perhaps starting Herbert Mullen down a path of drug problems, Kathy Francis, a totally uninvolved person in Mullen's life, was the person who answered her own door. The last thought in her mind was that she would be Mullen's next victim. In a blitz attack, Mullen took that opportunity to use a firearm to kill Kathy and her two children. Know that any time a person answers their door, especially if it's from an unexpected and unknown visitor, they are vulnerable to being victimized by a violent criminal. Once Mullen was able to ultimately locate his former teammate's cabin, he was lucid enough to ask him why he had ruined his life by introducing him to marijuana. Mullen took his former teammate's inability to answer to justification to kill him. When the man attempted to warn his wife, Mullen forced his way into the bathroom where she was attempting to shelter from Mullen, who killed her as well. When the former teammate of Mullen was contacted, he had a history of participating in high-risk activities by using and supplying Mullen with illegal drugs. Whether the former teammate knew of the mental history of Mullen was not stated, but any person who has a significant mental health history combined with illegal drug use is a deadly combination, one in which can provoke the mentally disordered person to act out in extreme violence. And because Mullen was already acting on his homicidal thoughts, everyone that was present was at risk of being harmed. When Mullen crossed paths with the four teenage boys, this time he used a confidence approach, claiming to be a park ranger, telling them to leave the area because they were polluting the forest. After the teenagers dismissed Mullen, he returned to the site where the teens were camping and killed all of them. Mullen gave his justification for killing the four teenage boys, saying they were polluting the environment. Whether Mullen was delusional or took it upon himself to be the environmental police or was just looking for any excuse to act on his homicidal impulses, nonetheless, all four teens lost their lives at the hands of this madman. And when Mullen was driving and noticed his next victim working in his own garden at his own home, Mullen stopped his vehicle and shot Mr. Perez, not even bothering to attempt to conceal either his identity or the vehicle he was driving. In this specific situation, more than likely, Mr. Perez was not even aware of the presence of Herbert Mullen or the fact that he had been targeted. There was absolutely nothing Mr. Perez could have done to prevent being killed by Herbert Mullen. Understand that people with severe mental illness are in every state, country, and probably even in your city. These may be some of the people that you see talking to themselves. A person experiencing a full-blown psychotic episode may not be aware of their actions or may not be capable of distinguishing right from wrong. And once their degree of mental illness has risen to the level of committing violent crimes, every person should know what to do if they encounter them or come under their attack. 
And should you come under their attack, don't hesitate to fight back. Remember, people who are severely mentally ill and experiencing a psychotic episode will succumb to having pain inflicted on them. You just need to know what to do and when to do it. If you don't carry a weapon, a concealed firearm or a knife, know where to locate improvised defensive weapons throughout your everyday environment. There are self-defense techniques that are now on the Serial Defense website, with more to follow in the next few months. These videos are meant to illustrate the physical techniques that can be used to defeat a violent offender. As you watch the techniques, pay close attention to the nuances in each technique. Practice everything slowly as you build your muscle memory and confidence. They will both be needed before you can perform them at full speed. And practice these techniques often to maintain competence. If you have any questions, you can always reach out to me. My email is joey at serialdefense.com. Every person should know what to do before, during, and after a violent crime. People selected as victims must shift their paradigm from victim to survivor and be prepared to fight for their own survival. This paradigm shift starts at the beginning stages of the crime, where there are still opportunities to change the outcome. Serial defense is designed to stop a violent attack before it begins, or at least mitigate the serious impact of personal harm from the offender. Using the best practices of law enforcement tactics and viable self-defense techniques, you will have options for survival. The entire goal is to turn the tide against a violent offender and survive any attack. If you'd like to submit a particular serial offender to be profiled along with preventative measures and defensive tactics, you can always email me with the offender's information. Subscribers to the Serial Defense website now call themselves Serial Defenders. If you're not yet a member, now is the perfect time to sign up to unlock the self-defense videos on the website. All it takes is $5 per month to sign up. The website again is SerialDefense.com. Don't wait until you've experienced a life-altering event to start your training. It's better to be prepared and not need the information than to need the information and not be prepared. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast was helpful to empower you with options for survival. I'm your host and personal safety trainer, Joy Walker. Audio editing and engineering by Jeff Bonanno. Graphics, content advisor, and more, Samantha Joy. Please follow, rate, review, and subscribe to Serial Defense. And please share the Serial Defense podcast and website with your friends and family members. In order to continuously improve this program, your feedback is valuable to provide you the best tactics and techniques that might just save your life or the lives of your loved ones. Look for future podcasts on Serial Defense that will highlight other serial offenders from the distant and recent past whether they're in your country, your state, or even your neighborhood. Until then, I leave you with my three rules of self-defense. Protect yourself at all times. Do unto bad guys before they do unto you. And always and everywhere, be ready. Take care.